may I again say to all of you, come on these Thursday evenings, how necessary it is to read the passage that we are considering. Read it in different versions. Make it a real study. And I think you will find that these studies will mean much more to you if you've only put something into them. We've said it again and again that the people who get the most out of this kind of study are those who've put the most into it, both in prayer and in uh, studying of the Word. So take uh, one version, read the passage in that, another day read it in another, another day in another, and somehow the Lord will start to show you things, perhaps he'll bring up questions which may get answered, and I should be only too delighted on questions like this to answer questions um, that people have as a result. I mean, if you like to come up, if they don't get answered in the study. Now, Mark chapter 14, we're going to read from verse 43, and I'm going to read in the Revised Standard Version. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I shall kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away safely. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Master, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And this evening we're going to take just these few verses which I have headed his betrayal and arrest. We, have, we are on this last subdivision of uh, the third major division of uh, Mark's Gospel. I've entitled it His Supreme Service and Work. And we're really still dealing with this matter of Gethsemane, the supreme test of Christ's service. Uh, last week we considered his agony in the garden. This week his betrayal and arrest. The battle Christ had fought and won in the garden had been won not a moment too soon. Whilst he was still speaking, we read in verse 43, whilst he was still speaking to his disciples, having found them asleep for the third time, an armed throng arrived headed by Judas. They had come to arrest Christ. His hour had come. 
And I have no doubt in my own mind that Christ, for some time, would have seen that great crowd wending its way uh, toward the garden. For wherever the garden of Gethsemane was situated on the Mount of Olives, such a crowd, a noisy crowd, quite a sizable crowd, uh, late on a quiet Passover on the Passover night of all nights, and with all those lanterns and torches which John in his account in John 18 specifically mentions uh, that sight must have been inescapable from anywhere uh, in the garden and I think only the sleeping disciples were unaware uh, of their approach they were fast asleep and uh, were oblivious to the whole uh, thing uh, they must have been very startled when Christ had sort of woken them up uh, for the, the third time and had um, uh, uh, sort of said to them, it's enough, look, the betrayer, my betrayer is here. Come on, we must get up, let's go out to meet them. Uh, they were sort of rubbing the sleep out of their eyes startled by the sight of this huge crowd with all the flaming torches and lanterns. For them it was a nightmarish ordeal that was just about to begin. But the way Christ react reacted was quite different. Calm confidence with which he goes out to uh, meet them is all the more remarkable when we remember that only less than half an hour before he was in the most terrible anguish that he had ever experienced. The fact is simply this, that Christ had fought and won the battle already in Gethsemane. And in the doing of the will of God, he found peace. Now I think here we learn a simple, immediately, before we go any further, we learn a simple and profound lesson. We are all, as Christians, sometime or another, tempted to draw out of the will of God for our own peace and well-being. as if by taking an easier road we will obtain greater peace and satisfaction. Learn from Christ that is never the case. In taking such a course that is drawing out of the will of God we may escape very much sacrifice but we invariably lose the peace which we had. I know so many Christians who have been tempted not to do the will of God for their own peace and well-being and have not done it and have ended up more restless, more spiritually neurotic and in some cases more physically neurotic 
mental wrecks than they would have ever have come even faintly near in doing the will of God. In doing the will of God, however great the cost may be, however great the antagonism, unpopularity we may have to face, however lonely the path is that we may have to tread, we discover and experience the peace of God. Now, I personally believe that this is more important than anything else in the whole world. I have the utmost sorrow, if you like, sympathy with anyone who's lost their peace. Better to walk into a lion's den, into a fiery furnace, knowing it to be the will of God, and have the peace of God in your heart, than to be banqueted in some sumptuous royal table and lose that deep, deep inner peace. It is, of course, I'm sure, essential to our spiritual, mental, and physical well-being, this peace of which we are speaking. The battle for Christ had been centered in his willingness to pay the price of our salvation and to do the will of God. That conflict had been won with those words, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now we see the fruit and the consequences of that victory in the servant of the Lord. With majestic calmness, he goes out to meet his betrayer and those come to arrest him. There is no better illustration of peace which passes all understanding, garrisoning the heart and the mind, than the Lord Jesus at this point. None of the anguish, none of the agony, none of the appalled amazement, None of the distress, even the, exceed, the, the exceeding sorrow to the point of death, it's all been replaced with peace. He can actually say, come on, let's get up, they're here. He didn't wait for them to come in and get him. He went out to meet them. Such is this peace that we are speaking about. And it will always be, even with the most insignificant servant of the Lord who follows in Christ's steps, God never calls upon us to obey his will without giving us the same peace Christ had when we gain the victory and do his will. 
Jesus said in John 14 verse 27, My peace I give unto you. That is the peace we see at the end of the Garden of Gethsemane. The peace with which he faced his arrest, his betrayal and arrest. The peace with which he faced his trials, the long, weary hours of investigation, of false charges, buffeting, spitting, physical torture, mental torture. That peace, that is the peace of the Lord Jesus. And he said, peace I leave with you, that is the peace of sins forgiven. That isn't his peace. He never needed peace for sins forgiven. Peace I leave with you. But my peace I give unto you. Now he had a peace which he gained, and he gained it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that is the peace he can give to you. But he cannot give it to you and me without our being prepared to go the same way. In other words, the Lord Jesus cannot give his peace to those who will not do the will of God. It's as simple as that. If you are not prepared to do the will of God as a child of God, you cannot know his peace. But if you are prepared to do his will, whatever the price, whatever the antagonism, whatever it means, wherever it calls upon you to go, then I promise you this, on the basis of God's honor and God's faithfulness, you shall know that peace of God which passes all understanding, garrisoning your heart and your mind in Christ. Furthermore, I think there is another lesson we must learn here before we pass on to look more deeply at these verses. Christ's hour had come and we see in the way he now faces it the perfect illustration of his words in verse 38. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. I think we have here the perfect illustration of these words. You will never drift into or evolve into the peace of God when severe emergencies or crises suddenly develop in your life. Now I will repeat that again. When sudden or severe crises, emergencies develop in your life, you will never just suddenly sort of uh, drift into the peace of God. It is those who have kept awake and kept in touch with God who are armed with the peace of God when the crisis suddenly arrives. How often we're caught out in a sudden emergency, in a severe, unexpected crisis. It catches us off balance. Why are we caught off balance? God has promised peace. We are caught off balance because we have not kept awake and kept in touch with him. 
That's all prayer really is. Keeping in living, constant touch with God. Spiritually, those who are so armed with the peace of God when a crisis develops like that, spiritually, they have been awake enough for God to make them aware of the issues. And by His grace, they have faced those issues and got the victory. Deliberately, they have chosen to do the will of God in the face of those issues. And they experience the peace of God. Now, is this not just what the Lord Jesus meant? Pray, keep awake, keep praying, that you may not enter into temptation. Trial, the sudden crisis which can knock you off balance. He had proved it himself now. He had faced the issues in the garden and faced them squarely. They had appalled him, the cost that he was about to meet to save us. For a moment he flinched and faltered, but then he had settled the matter with those words, not what I will, but what thou wilt. He deliberately chose the will of God. Now, absolute peace. Absolute peace. I can't help thinking of certain scriptures. Isaiah 26, verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on because he trusted him. Isn't that just what we're talking about? In living touch with them, keep awake and keep praying that you enter not into temptation. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Or I think of another one in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 48 and uh, verse 17. To 19, thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, who teacheth thee to profit, who leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the grains thereof. His name would not be cut off nor destroyed from before. And then again, I think of Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15. Perhaps a little point that may get overlooked in the armour which is ours. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your feet, that is your feet that walk in the way and will of God. That's by which, as it were, you do fulfill your ministry. The gospel of peace. Oh, it's interesting. You need that peace in doing the will of God. It's the same thought again. Well, let's look a little more closely at these verses now. Mark only tells us 
that this was a crowd with swords and clubs sent out by the Sanhedrin, verse 43. Uh, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Chief priests, scribes and elders is a term for the Sanhedrin, the sort of Jewish house of parliament, if you like. Um, so from the other Gospels, we learn uh, that it consisted of the temple guard, that is the Le Levitical guard, they were all Levites, and their captains, who were also Levites, some of the chief priests and elders, and probably a crowd of others who could be trusted by the temple authorities. It's possible, indeed probable, that there was a small band of Roman soldiers as well. From John 18, it seems quite inescapable uh, that that is so. The Roman governor normally made such a band of Roman soldiers available to the temple authorities, especially for keeping order at festivals, because uh, Jewish people are not famous for being orderly. If you want to see those uh, uh, verses, you look at John 18, verse 3 and 12, and Luke 22, verse 52. There are two things I think we could note here which are of interest. The first is that priests and Levites were never allowed to carry swords. They were only permitted to carry clubs. <laughs> you may wonder what the difference is, but again, it is one of these fine distinctions, a priest was, or Levite, it was, con it was considered quite wrong for a priest or a Levite to shed blood. So he was not allowed to bear a sword, but he was allowed to carry a club. <laughs> sort that one out yourself. <laughs> oh, uh, the second thing is, although we are not told that they had an arrest warrant, it seems quite clear from the record that they did in fact have one. It would have been um, quite uh, almost impossible for them to have seized Christ in the presence of the Roman guard as well as the temple guard without at least some show of legality. G Judas had agreed on a prearranged signal that would lead them to the person of Christ. The one he would kiss was the one they were to seize immediately and get safely away before there could be any trouble. Verse 44. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I shall kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away safely. There are some interesting facts which we ought to note here. Firstly, Evidently, not one of these people could identify Christ with absolute certainty, if at all. Now, isn't that an interesting fact? He was so well-known, so popular amongst the ordinary people, yet not one single one in this whole crowd of armed people could identify him with absolute certainty. Indeed, in John 18, they actually say, who, where is Jesus? He says, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And they fell back. It's perhaps a sad indication of something so common to mankind, the ability to judge someone or some work 
without any first-hand evidence. In spite of the fact that he had taught daily in the temple, see in verse uh, uh, 48, 49, he had taught daily in the temple for weeks on end, none of them had evidently bothered to go and even hear him, let alone see what he looked like. Uh, they relied upon the temple authorities and other officials for their estimate of Christ. Isn't this true? Of so much in this world, and may I say, you won't find it in the notes, but uh, how sadly true of Christians. The things one hears about other servants of the Lord, about their ministry, about their work, all on hearsay. So few people will really go and investigate and see for themselves. So little did, these, did this crowd, including the chief priests and elders and the captains of the temple guard, so little did they know uh, Christ that they could not even arrest him without Judas identifying him. Now I find that a very interesting fact. Now a second little point I'd like to make here is the crowd was so well armed that it prompted Christ to ask the officers uh, whether they thought of him as a violent robber or brigand. Verse 43, um, crowd with swords and, uh, and clubs. And then in verse uh, 48, have you come out, ag out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? The word there, robber, is interesting because it's not the other word that's used in the New Testament for thief, as you have in your authorized version. There's one word which tends to mean someone who steals by stealth, quietly, silently. Hiddenly. And this other word, uh, better translated robber, means a brigand, really. Uh, uh, really, we'd almost say a pirate, a highwayman, someone who's violent. His, his, his livelihood depends on uh, violence. Certainly, whatever we might feel about this armed crowd, it seemed ludicrous to send such a number of fully armed men to arrest one man surrounded by a handful of his followers. And furthermore, a man who was known for his peaceful ways. What was in the mind of the temple authorities? It's uh, all speculation. But what was in their mind? Uh, did, did they expect Christ and the disciples to resist? Or were they perhaps more likely to have been afraid of some sudden uprising on the part of the population if it got to them that Christ had been arrested? Or was it the result of advice from Judas? Judas, it seems, was a very businesslike and shrewd man. Uh, that's why, of course, they put him in charge of the money matters uh, in the twelve. Uh, yet surely Judas knew that Christ was not that kind of person to believe or take up violence. Did Judas think, according to the way this world thinks, that Christ would violently re resist when it came to the final test? 
Or was he afraid of the power which he had often seen displayed by Christ when he had calmed a storm or gone through a mob or many other things? Or was it that Judas thought that Peter or James or, or John, sons of thunder, or Simon the Zealot might possibly violently resist. If that was so, he wasn't too far wrong. <laughs> because in this record we are told that in fact one of them took out a sword and sliced off the high priest slave's ear. And uh, John, in his account, identifies that one as Simon Peter. Whatever it was that brought out this fully armed crowd to arrest Christ, the authorities were obviously taking no chances. And then again, there's a third point I think that we have here, um, which I think is a, an important point. I've sought to make it in these studies on Mark. For the Sanhedrin, this chance to arrest Christ seemed too good to be true. They had thought that all possibility of seizing him during the Passover was ruled out for fear of the ordinary people. We read that in this same chapter, 14, verse 1 and 2. It says that they thought that they would, but not during the Passover, for they feared of tumult of the people. It is a commonly held fallacy that at this point in Christ's life there was no sympathy on the part of the ordinary people toward Christ. That due to the fickleness of human nature they'd all turned against him. You even sing hymns about them one moment shouting Hosanna to him, hailing him as king and the next moment shouting crucify him, crucify him. There can be no doubt at all about the fact that human nature is fickle. Every one of us surely knows that in ourselves. And there is plenty of evidence for it in these chapters and indeed in these very verses. However, we must never forget that the only way the temple authorities could arrest Christ during the festival was like the secret police of our own day during the night hours and in a secluded garden away from the population centre. This was due solely to their fear of the large majority of the ordinary people. Furthermore, the same fear may well explain the way the crowd were so heavily armed. As I've said, the Jewish establishment had Judas and Judas alone to thank for this opportunity of finally getting Christ. Judas's treachery is hard to believe. We have a picture here of a man apparently devoid of conscience and sold out to the devil. It's a terrible picture. As soon as the crowd arrived at the garden, Judas went straight up to Christ and made a great show of greeting him. Rabbi, he said, and kissed him effusively. 
as arranged, the God moved in, took hold of Christ, and seized him. The servant of the Lord had been betrayed and arrested. Now note in verse 45 the little word, he kissed him. The word kiss, the verb here, is in an emphatic form and could uh, mean kissed him fervently or kissed him affectionately or as in some of your revised version margin kissed him much or repeatedly or better still in this context kissed him effusively it wasn't just a peck on the cheek this was a great show he made a great fuss about it strolled up to the rabbi kissed him effusively it was a totally hypocritical and, em and empty gesture. To such depths a man can sink when allied to Satan. It appears that Judas had no qualms of conscience at all. He seems only intent on getting the matter settled and he goes at it with business efficiency. Note the detached coldness which his words in verse 44 uh, betray. The Revised Standard Version uh, brings that out very well. It says, the one I shall kiss is the man, seize him and get him away safely. What cold words when you think that this man had lived with Christ for three years and had an honoured position amongst them, had been loved and respected, had been taken into all the intimate secrets of the twelve. It is hard for us to understand such treachery. But church history, as well as the Bible, furnishes us with many examples of it, and they are right up to date. If in Christ we have seen the true character and nature of service, then in Judas we see the exact opposite. I am interested in these verses. I hope I had the time to be able to say what I want to say. Because it seems to me they're dominated by two men. Christ and Judas. In one sense, we have three pictures. We have a picture of service triumphant in Christ. We have a picture of utterly false service in Judas. And we have a picture of in the disciples of service, true service, which failed. Now I said that if in Christ we've seen the true character and nature of service, then in Judas we see the exact opposite. What do I mean? I mean this. There is in Judas no compassionate 
sympathetic, the service flowing out of a heart of love, no sacrificing of himself for others, even those nearest and dearest uh, to him. In Judas, we only see the terrible nature of self-centeredness. We see to what depths such self-centeredness can sink. We see to what lengths it can go. Here in the final analysis, in its full development, it is possessed by Satan himself. We're told in John that Satan had entered into him. All the love Christ had shown toward Judas is to no avail. All the grace extended to him is held as of no account. Judas has become fixed in evil. His conscience seared. His brain a piece of satanically inspired machinery. Now don't tell me that it can't happen. It does happen. And we have yet to see more examples of this in the closing era of this age. There is not an atom of love in this man now. It has been completely extinguished by self-centeredness. How terrible the final development of self-centeredness is. How fearful if the world were finally to be governed by the kind of character we see in Judas. Shrewd, efficient, businesslike, gifted, unfeelingful as a machine, totally self-centered, the kind of nature which is able to sell anyone, however precious, <coughs> in order to advance oneself or one's view. What a terrible thing it would be if this world were finally to be governed by that kind of nature and that kind of man. When we look at Judas, we see what real depravity is. Now, some people seem to think that depravity is all to do with sex. But the smallest part of depravity is to do with sex. The Oxford Dictionary definition of depravity is simply this, moral perversion, viciousness. Moral perversion, viciousness. In other words, we see a, a really depraved person in Judas. Now, on the question of sex, Judas may have been as pure as pure can be. But when it came to depravity, moral perversion, he wins the prize. He is utterly and completely perverted morally.
There is within him a viciousness which comes out of selfishness. In seeing Judas this way, we catch a little glimpse of the nature and atmosphere of hell. Hell is a depraved place filled with depravity. You see Judas and you see the kind of nature that is found in hell. To be self-centered, let me make this point, is in its final fruition and outworking to be depraved. It is as if the whole matter of service is, in these verses, sharply focused in Christ and Judas, the son of God and the son of perdition. From the beginning of time, this, the conflict, the great contention has been over the kind of man who is to rule this world. The kind of service which is to characterize everything. In the opening verses of the Bible, God spoke to man about service. In Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28, where it says he made man in his image and after his likeness, he then says to man these words. He says, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God spoke to Adam and Eve about service. In chapter 2 and verse 15, it's even clearer. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden, <laughs> to dress it and to keep it. Now, the Hebrew word there for dress is the word to serve. It can also mean to, to till, to tend, to serve. And dress and, and keep it is the ordinary word for guarding, for watching, guarding, keeping. God in the very opening verses of the Bible at the very beginning of time, spoke to man about service. Subdue, have dominion, be fruitful, serve, keep, guard, watch over. The purpose of God was that man, becoming a partaker of his own nature and life, should serve him and one another. Man's whole constitution was radically altered and changed when he fell. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, the devil said to Eve, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then in that day ye, uh, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Man became a self-centered, a self-sufficient, a self-conscious being. Satan 
had injected his own nature into man. From that point, the great battle has been over what kind of man is going finally to win in this world. Whether it's going to be God's man or the devil's man. Whether it's going to be Christ or Judas. Whether it's going to be the first Adam, the first man, or the second man, Christ. And the whole of the Bible is filled with this. battle has been over what kind of service is going to characterize everything. Self-centered, self-gratifying, self-sufficient, self-assertive service such as this world is filled with, or the service which flows out of a relationship to God, out of a sharing of divine nature, out of divine love, self sacrificing service. Now I could give you all kinds of scriptures for this. I can think of 1 Corinthians 15 verses 47 to 50 where it speaks of the first man is of the earth earthy, the second man from heaven is of heaven. And so it goes on. As we who are earthy have borne the image of the earth, so we must bear the image of the heavenly. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so on. Oh, there are so many scriptures. I can think of Colossians um, uh, chapter 3 and verse 11. 12. Uh, ye have put on the new man, wherein there is neither Gentile nor Jew, barbarian, scythian, bondman, nor free member. Christ is everything and in everyone. Or I think again of the words in, in Ephesians 4, which speak of Christ. He who descended is the one who has ascended that he might fill all things. And then it goes on a little later and says, and ye have put on the new man. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. The whole Bible's full of this. Two men. And it's surely how this gospel begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God's servant has arrived, expressing and revealing the, the true kind of service that God has always wanted. The second man is here. In many ways, this was the, this was the battle uh, being fought in Gethsemane. Satan's whole objective was to stop Christ from reaching the cross. And thus, to stop him from not only saving fallen man, but producing the kind of service which we have seen in him, in them. And Satan failed. We see in these verses these two kinds of men, and we see them in their final development, maturity, if you like, completeness. On the one hand, we see Christ. And on the other hand, we see Judas. When that first 
kind of man is stripped of all his refinements, when his self-centeredness has come to its full development, he must always end like Judas. Now that may put fear into some people, but it's absolutely true. In its final development, self-centeredness ends in satanic possession. Satan will always see to it that it's like that. Judas's suicide, though not recorded in Mark, is, sim is symbolic of what happened to the man, to his personality. He has destroyed himself. And that's the whole tragedy of this kind of uh, man. He always, in the end, destroys himself. In Christ we see something totally different. Only half an hour before he had fought a battle and won it on the very issue of service. He also, like Judas, will die. But the world of difference between these deaths. Judas the remorse of self-centeredness and Christ the laying down of his life that we might be saved. He, that is Christ, is now going forward to render his supreme service to lay down his life for our salvation. The difference in character between Christ and Judas is the difference between the lamb and the serpent. From the beginning of time, the battle has been over which of these, the lamb or the serpent, would finally gain the victory, win. In Gethsemane, the lamb won. Within hours, he is going to offer himself. Thank God we can say tonight it is the Lamb who is, in, who is eternally enthroned at the right hand of God, the heart of a new creation, the source and the energy of true service which is going to go on throughout the ages to come. In the other disciples, the eleven, we see yet another picture of service. They truly loved Christ and honestly meant all that they had said earlier that evening. We had the record in verses 26 to 31. The fact was that their service was based on their own resources. Their motives were right in many ways. Their honesty was there. They were sincere. They weren't insincere. They were absolutely sincere. But their service was based on their own resources, their own energy, their own zeal and uh, devotion. It was therefore bound to fail. Even Peter, when he takes up the sword and for a moment resists, does a bit of damage, which the master puts right. Even when Peter resists, it is only to dismally fail.
When the guard had arrested Christ, Mark, Mark tells us that one of the disciples, John identifies him as Simon Peter, uh, if you want to read that, it's in John 18, verse 10, drew his sword and struck off the high, the high priest's slave's ear. So at least we can see that Peter meant what he had said. I would rather die with you than deny you, Lord. It's in verse 31. We know from Luke 22 and verse 38 that they had in fact two swords with them. And it's an interesting thought. Who had the other? Well, we shan't know till we get to heaven. <clears throat> but I suppose it more or less narrows down to either John or James or Simon the Zealot, although we may get a surprise and find one of the more sort of docile ones was the one who had it. But we know they had two swords with them. Uh, John tells us that Peter only used the sword after the guard had fallen back to the ground when Christ had answered them. They had gone forward and said, we, he said, who do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. They fell back. And it was only then that Peter took the sword. Perhaps he got courage believing that the power of God was going to destroy the lot of them and perhaps he'd jump in like most of us would and uh, sort of be with the Lord in this great triumph. Whatever did happen, it was only for a moment. And within minutes, every one of those eleven had forsaken Christ the Christ they genuinely loved and honestly wanted to serve, they had forsaken him and fled for their lives. That's in verse 15. The words of the Lord Jesus had been fulfilled. You will all fall away. The sheep will be scattered. They had failed in the garden and they failed even more miserably now yet it had to be before they could offer the same kind of service which they had seen in Christ they had to, to lose all their self-confidence they had to go through the devastation in one sense of their own natural strength and resources they had to come to their own experience of Calvary and of Pentecost, the cross and the spirit. Then and only then could they know true service. Judas goes out of the record here in Mark and is never mentioned again. But these others <coughs> They stay in the record. Uh, what can we really say about them? I think we can put it this way. These 11 were quite different to Judas. For him, it was the end. For them, it was the beginning. And that is the world of difference between those who belong to the first man and those who belong to the second. These eleven 
were taking the first steps on the path that was to end in such glorious service as we find in the book of Acts. These same men, these weak, frail, failing men who denied their Lord in his hour of need, these same men were the men who were to stand up in front of thousands, who were to be brought before the authorities, these same people, the establishment, <coughs> and not be cowed to fear, but to preach with boldness the word of God. No one can ever be used of God no one can ever know real service till he or she is prepared for the devastation of their natural strength and resources. Sometimes we have to go through deep, deep ways before we can be brought out of that to an experience of the cross and the Spirit, which will mean that the service of Jesus Christ is in us. Now, there are just two other things I'd like to note in these verses. First, in verse 49, the words of Christ, let the scriptures be fulfilled. In one sense, he never finished this sentence. And so, to understand it, we have to add a phrase. All this is happening that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The Lord was simply saying to them, well, but the scriptures... Let the scriptures be fulfilled. In other words, once again, he pointed out that these hours were the fulfillment of all Old Testament prediction and prophecy, both in word and in type. And the second thing I want you to note is in verses 51 and 52, this young man. There's a fascinating little incident which has no real bearing whatsoever on the record. Unless we understand that the young man was John Mark. This is not only possible, it's probable. Whoever he was, uh, in all probability, was related to the owners of the garden. Maybe he had the key and had opened the place for them. Uh, maybe he was just on hand uh, should any need develop. And when this happened, maybe that's why he followed. In the East, there's a sense of loyalty that's not always uh, found in the West. If you let part of your property to someone, you feel responsible for them whilst they're on it, or anything to do with it. In the same way that if you have a person, remember this, if you ever invited to an Arab meal, always eat his food, because he'll never stab you while you're eating his food. <laughs> but all over the Middle East, once you've eaten the food, it's an it's a honour of their guest. And if anyone else tries to do something, they'll make short shrift of them. So remember that. <laughs> Um, uh, maybe, it, it may be, of course, uh, that as so often in the East, again, 
Uh, he was a youngster, adolescent, uh, teenager, uh, in uh, the family where Christ had kept the Passover. Uh, and um, uh, he had uh, sort of uh, cottoned on to the Passover party. Now, this often happens in the East. We, I remember it two or three times, boys, about 15, 16, when we were moving down, just cottoning on to the party, and no one told them to go. They weren't supposed to be there. They would even creep in sometimes to leaders' meetings. Uh, they weren't supposed to be there, but they cottoned on. It could just be that uh, this was John, John Mark sort of followed them down and went into the garden and we we don't we don't really know um, whatever uh, for whatever reason the young man was there it appears that he was sleeping when suddenly aroused either with the others in the garden or in some small outhouse which again was very common in these, this type of garden in the garden it seems somewhat strange otherwise that on a cold night he was sleeping with so little on. Even more strange that he should be walking around with only a linen cloth. It's been suggested that this linen cloth is the talit. This is a, the prayer shawl uh, used by all devout Orthodox Jews and used by many of them next to the skin. You know where the scripture says about uh, you must have uh, the fringes? Well, you often see them hanging out of the trousers because they're next to the skin. And it has been suggested that in fact this cloth was the talit. This boy was a, belonged to a devout family. He was sleeping. He'd taken his clothes off. But the one thing he did keep just draped around him was the prayer shawl. Um, well, I don't know. But what we do know is this that when all the others fled, he followed. And he followed until the guards became suspicious of him and seized him. When that happened, uh, he felt that discretion was the better part of valor, <laughs> and he left his prayer shawl in their grip and fled naked into the night. Well, now, we come to the end of these verses. I think they're tremendous verses. We've seen on the one hand Judas, we've seen on the other hand Christ. We've seen, as it were, a pen picture of the first man and the second man. We see the very principle, in one sense, that governs that first man and the principle that governs the second man. Finally, the servant of the Lord is utterly alone. The hour for which he'd come into this world had arrived. He'd already faced the test of his service alone and won. Now he was to face the terrible ordeal of his trial. Long, long hours of investigation, cross-examination, false charges without food or drink, and physical beating and torture and at the end, execution. And he was to face the whole thing from this point utterly alone. He had not even the comfort of some sleeping disciples. I wonder what it was that filled the mind 
of Christ as he was led away by that God. Sorrow because he was alone or thoughts about the coming ordeal we do not know. If, however, what we've seen in Christ up to this point is anything to go by, then in all probability his heart and his mind and his prayer was with those disciples in the moment of their destitution, their disillusionment. You will remember that Jesus had said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan hath obtained thee by request, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. I can't help wondering whether the Lord Jesus in these moments was more with them than he was with his own trouble. He understood them. And knowing all their failure and all their sin, their capacity for denying him, he still loved them. It was that love which was taking him to the cross. And it was that love which would bring everyone of these eleven through to be servants of the Lord. And you know you can say that for every child of God in this room. If God has said to you, if Jesus has said to you, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And you are ready to be obedient, to trust and obey. That's all God asks, trust and obey. You can be as sure as these eleven that the love of God will see you through all your failure, all your collapses, all your disillusionment, all your disappointment, all the devastation of your natural strength and resources. The love of God will see you through it all, not just to get you through, not just to save you, but to get you right through to become fishers of men, servants of the Lord. May the Lord help every one of us this night. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Dear Lord, we bow here in thy presence this evening, and we are conscious, Lord, that in ourselves we are just like these dear disciples. Oh Lord, how we thank thee that thou hast saved us and made us thine own. We thank thee, Lord, for that. And we thank thee for that love of thine.
which prays for us tonight. That marvelous intercession at the right hand of God. Lord, we thank thee and we worship thee and we pray together that thou wilt use this little study tonight to do something in our lives. By thy word to correct us, to encourage us, to strengthen us to bring us through. May we all be those who know the peace of God in doing the will of God. May we be those, Lord, if we've got issues, who are prepared to face them and settle them, deliberately choosing thy will. Not what I will, but what thou wilt, and mean it. O oh Lord, help us. Help us, everyone, we pray. And we ask that we may make a discovery that what we can't do and what we are not, Jesus Christ can do and Jesus Christ is. May we make that discovery to find that he is in us and is able again to serve in and through us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.